Well, we're continuing through the book of Revelation this week. Uh, Revelation, if you're not familiar with it, is the last book in the Bible. It is a very difficult book to understand. We're getting a little bit of a taste here with 12,000 people from 12 tribes being sealed for some reason. Hopefully we'll figure that out by the end of the day. And uh, this picture of a multitude in heaven. And who are these people and what are they doing? And why is God giving all of these things to them? And then, of course, at the end, you know, the clearest thing of all, an angel throwing a golden censer on the earth, and then everything seems to go terribly down there. So... Uh, the book of Revelation is written, uh, it's worth remembering this every week. The book of Revelation is written to Christians who are struggling, to Christians who are suffering for their faith. If you want to know who this book was first written to, all you have to do is go back to pages two, or I'm sorry, chapters two and three, where there are the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And once again, these seven, uh, seven churches, seven is a significant number in Revelation, which signifies completion. And so it's not just to these seven churches, but also to all of the churches everywhere and at all times. This book is for us. And we've just gone through, we've uh, seen John standing in the throne room of heaven and, and he sees that there's a scroll sealed with seven seals and no one can open it until finally Jesus comes along, who is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and the slain lamb. It's interesting, it says, an angel speaks and John hears, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed and he can do this. And then he looks and he sees a slain lamb. And that he hears and he sees is going to be significant for us here in this passage today. And then Jesus starts to open up this scroll, one seal at a time. And last week we talked about how these first four seals contain what, even if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, you may have heard of before, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Very exciting sorts of things, except they're terrible. They're terrible. The first horse is a conqueror. And he represents the striving of human beings against each other and, and the striving of empire against empire. And the second horse comes out, and he is the horse that takes peace from the earth. And not just from between the nations, but peace even from, from families and from friends and from within societies. And then the third horse brings economic catastrophe and injustice to the world. We don't know anything about that in these days. And finally, the fourth horseman comes, and we finally see what all of these horsemen are pointing to, death. The fourth horseman, the fourth horseman actually is this great Johnny Cash song, uh, When the Man Comes Around. I don't know if you know it, but he, he says, I heard, as it were, the voice of thunder and a voice you know, saying, come and see. And at the end, he says, and I saw a, a pale horse. And its rider was death, and Hades was following close behind him. Death rules in the world. And you know, we're not surprised by this. We're not looking forward and thinking this is going to happen someday. All of these things are happening today. Sometimes people like to ask me, Pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? Many of you have heard me say this many times. And my answer is always yes. Not because... The events of the book of Revelation are about to be fulfilled at the very end, but because every day after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven is part of the last 
days. As a matter of fact, Pentecost itself points to this. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go out and tell everyone about Jesus, speaking all these languages they don't know. And some people say, this is, these men must be drunk. And Peter responds by saying, well, they're not drunk. It's only 10 in the morning. We wait a little longer than that. But he also, more importantly, says this is to fulfill what was said by the prophet Joel, that in the last days... I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He says, that's what's happening here. Yes, we are in the last days, and the four horsemen are running back and forth among the earth. And I don't think this is particularly controversial. I don't think it is. Uh, Do we see people striving against each other and destroying themselves and the world in the process? Check. (laughs) Uh, Do we see peace being taken from, I mean, have you had a talk about politics lately with people in your family? Check. Do we see economic catastrophe all around us and economic injustice all around us? You guys bought eggs lately? Check. And do we know that all of our lives have an expiration date in this world? Check. And it doesn't seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem fair in so many ways. Because what did we do to deserve this? Anyone feel that way? I mean, it's easy sometimes. And as a matter of fact, we feel this tension in our own hearts. And our culture loves to do this too. We're like, oh yeah, that guy. (laughs) If there is a hell, he's going. You notice what happens? There are actually some really wonderful things happening in our society in recognizing that life is not always fair. You know, whatever, whatever problem, I mean, we, I don't think we can look at any movement or any, any institution or anything in our society and say it's all good, it's all perfect. But I also think it's pretty hard to look at any movement or any, every movement in our society and say it's all bad. There's usually a kernel of truth somewhere. And, you know, you got like the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, right? And he horribly abused women for many, many years, taking advantage of them in, in terrible, awful sorts of ways. And do you notice what happened? We as a culture, we like to talk about, hey, you know, there's forgiveness is a great thing. You know, we should all figure out how to get along. You should do, you know, be able to express yourself as you are, except for certain people. We're pretty sure that they're going to hell. And Harvey Weinstein might be one of them. And what happened? Everyone had to pile on and say, oh, yeah, he's a bad man. What he did was terrible. And the people who were silent, who were near him, were called out if they didn't say this is a horrible, terrible thing that happened. We see this repeating over and over again. Culturally, and I'm not just speaking, by the way, of the culture out there, but also the culture in here very often. One of the things that we need to do to belong to the culture and to make sure that we prove we're a good guy is to disapprove of the right people and disapprove of the right things. Uh, years ago, I was fairly new at the church. We just put up cameras outside because we'd had some trouble. And, and uh, one day, somebody called me, and I apologize if this is you. I don't even remember who this is. But somebody called me and said, I came to the church today, and the alarm uh, was not set, and the door was unlocked. I said, well, okay, well, we need to lock the door and set the alarm. They said, you know, we installed those cameras. Let's see who it was. Because the important thing is that we know who to blame, right? And I know we're all laughing out there. And yet, 
Have you made a phone call like that in your life? The important thing is that we all know who to blame, and that's not true. And it seems unfair that these terrible things happen to people like us. It should happen to people like them, whoever them are. But there are real evils in our world. And when Jesus opens the fifth seal, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Because these four horsemen are tearing up our lives as well. And because this life isn't fair. And because we're telling people the truth and we're being killed for it or persecuted for it or looked down upon for it. it doesn't, I think that even though what's in immediate view here is the martyrs, the people who die for their faith, it's actually not limited to those folks either. It's anyone who has suffered wrongly in Jesus Christ calling out for justice. Because it's hard to live in a broken world where the four horsemen run back and forth over all the earth. And it doesn't seem fair that God would do that to his people. Sometimes even that God would do that to, to me. I seem like a pretty decent guy after all. I'm speaking for us generally here, not for me in particular. And so there's a little interlude here. After the first six seals, I didn't mention the sixth, which is the final judgment, but there's a little interlude here in chapter 7. We have seal ones, seals one through six open, and then, and then it says, after this, which, by the way, is not chronological after this, but is after that vision, I saw this other vision over here. My next vision might be a better way of translating this. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they're holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And what's in mind here is four angels. We just saw four horsemen, right? And these are the same people, same heavenly beings. So before they get to work, another angel comes up from the east, from the sunrise, having the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had given, given power to harm the land and sea, don't do anything until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, a seal, if you take a look at uh, Craig Keener here, right, he says that a seal is, uh, well, I, I got the wrong quote here, but Keener, in talking about seals, I mean, it's basically you got a, your signet ring, right, because you're somebody with authority, and you find some wax, you, know, you put wax on your document that you want to seal up, you press your ring into it. And it says, this is my document, right? Because this is my seal. And if the seal is broken, then it means that, that could be a bad thing. You can't trust the contents of the document because someone may have changed it. But as long as the seal is whole, it protects the document in its integrity. And here's where we're going to come to Keener. See, Keener says that these people who are sealed, these 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, although Dan is missing and I don't have time to get into that this morning, but these 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, numbering 144,000 altogether, he says, like documents or merchandise sealed and stamped to guarantee their contents and prevent tampering, God's servants were to be marked off as his. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen in our lives, right? Because otherwise, none of us are Christians, right? 
because bad things have happened in our lives. But here's what it does mean, that even as, even as the world falls apart around us, even as we might hurt, even as we might be in pain, God has chosen to place his mark on us. He has engraved us as his. And as we sing in before the throne of God above, a hymn we do every once in a while here, it says, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart, and I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Uh, when you were a kid, you, or more likely your mother, <laughs> might have written something on the inside of your jacket or something else like that, especially if you are prone to losing things. I have to have two of everything so that when I lose the first thing, I still have the second thing. Why do they do that? Why does mom do that? Why would you do that? It's mine. Right? It's, you can't just pick it up and take it for yourself. It's mine. But here's the other thing. If it gets lost, people will know where to return it. God has written his name on you, fellow Christian. So no matter how hard things get, no matter how bad things get, no matter how lost you feel or you actually are, you will still be returned to the one who owns you. And multiple times in the book of Revelation, we'll come back to this idea of the 144,000 and the, and the people who are sealed, who God holds on to and doesn't let go. See, this isn't a physical protection that we're being given, right? Even the jacket with its name written on it might end up in some nasty places before it gets home. But... It does promise a spiritual protection. You will be delivered to your forever home. And if you watch HGTV, the, the Property Brothers or whoever it is, they love to say, you're forever home. Right? I like that phrase. See, where I, what we're going through today, these four horsemen running back and forth, there are two different things that they're achieving in the world. Uh, I like how N.T. Wright actually describes or summarizes this whole section of, of Revelation where we've got the seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls of God's wrath and then a lot of explanation of how that works until about the end of chapter 19. And Wright says it this way. He says, if we look at the problems and pains of the world from a certain angle, from the angle of, of chapter 6 to 7 here, God's answer to what's wrong with the world is to draw out the arrogant wickedness of human beings to its full extent and show that he is bringing his people safely through. Chapter 7. If we look at these same problems and pains from the next angle of vision, God's answer is to allow the forces of destruction to do their worst so that he can then establish his kingdom fully and finally over the world. And we'll explore that in the weeks to come. And if we take a deep breath, I like how he says that, if we are not too afraid to continue and begin the story again from yet a third angle of vision, these would be the seven bowls of God's wrath, we will see the full depth and horror of the problem of our world, to which God's answer will be to inflict on the rebellious world the equivalent of the plagues of Egypt, 
before finally rescuing his people and judging the dark powers that have for so long enslaved them. He won't leave us alone. And yet we get caught up sometimes in the suffering. And so there are two things that happen. See, these trials, these four horsemen, the trumpets we're about to hear in the next weeks, and then the bowls of wrath we're going to hear after that. These trials serve the purpose of hardening the ungodly in their response to God. And I don't think this is rocket science either. I don't think this is particularly surprising. Uh, to show you, for example, where it says this in the book of Revelation, it says it, when the sixth seal was opened and the world comes to an end, it says the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, there's still no repentance, is there? There's still no, maybe at this moment, maybe it's not too late to make peace with this God. It's, nope, we've made our choice. We made our choice long ago, and it shaped our lives ever since. And so now rocks and mountains hide us, fall on us, kill us, before God's wrath reaches us. But it serves, I think more hopefully, another function, These, the seal demonstrates that where the ungodly are hardened in their response to God, the trials that God's servants go through purify them. And I don't think this is particularly surprising either. I heard somebody once say, I think it was John Piper, the worst prayer we can pray for our children is that God will keep them safe forever. That doesn't sound right, does it? I don't know about you, but I would love for my children to be as safe as possible for all their lives long. But when I reflect on my own life, and this is where Piper goes next, the most important things I've ever learned came in times of danger and of hurt and of injury. That's the broken nature of the world that we live in. We are transformed more by the hard things we go through than we are by the good. Isn't that a strange thing? Think about it this way. Has anyone ever complimented you? This is participatory. Let me see. Has anyone ever complimented you? Make you feel good? How long? Yeah, a few minutes. Maybe you remembered it fondly a little bit later. Has anyone ever said something nasty? How did it make you feel? Terrible. Terrible. For how long? For a long time. The broken things in this world hit us in a way the good things don't. The good news is the broken things are temporary, even though they feel permanent. Because, and I'm going to cheat a little bit and go to the end of our passage here, one of the elders asked me, those in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John says, hey, you're the one in charge of this. I don't know. You tell me. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. and They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. 
Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. They must not live in the valley anymore. I don't know. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, the the hard and hurtful things feel permanent, but in reality are temporary. And the good things feel so transitory, but in reality last forever. God has marked these 144,000 so they will persevere. Now, who are the 144,000? Well, first of all, it's symbolic, right? Do you notice how symbolic these numbers seem to be? How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. Twelve. So there are 12 tribes of Israel. And 12, you know, what's 12,000? 12 times 1,000, right? So a lot of people in all of these tribes. But then you get through, and the tribes are numbered in a kind of weird way. Because first of all, Dan is missing. The tribe of Joseph is here, but he's supposed to have two half-tribes out of them, which are Manasseh and Ephraim, and you wouldn't know this unless you're a big Bible nerd. Fortunately, I am to help you out this morning. So there's something weird about the listing of all of these tribes of Israel that makes you think maybe it's not primarily about Israel. And if you page back, or at least about Israel, the nation, and then you page back in earlier in the letters to the seven churches, and you hear John saying things like, hey, you're being persecuted by the Jews in your city, but you know, they're not really Jews which I know is kind of offensive in our culture in a lot of ways, and I'm sorry about that. But his point is, they've given up on the promise that I gave to them. They rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. You are the true Israel, not because of your ethnicity, not because of your blood, but because of the blood of Jesus that covers you from all sin, and because of your faith in him. So when he's numbering all of these tribes of Israel, he's really numbering the church. That idea of Israel here is meant to lead us to the church. And then what do we see? Well, there's another vision. So he's got the vision. He sees the 144,000 sealed to be protected spiritually until the very end. And then... After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're praising God. And they're the ones who are receiving all of God's promises. See, these people are the same. The 144,000 who are sealed is that symbolic representation of the great multitude. And here's, uh, here's where I said, you might remember I said a little bit earlier that in, in chapter 5, John's told, don't worry, the, the line of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And then he turns and he sees the slain lamb. John is told the 144,000 of Israel are being sealed, and then he turns and he sees the great multitude that no one can number. And what are these, what's this great multitude doing? Well, first of all, they've received these good promises that we already talked about, right? They are delivered from their trouble. And everything is good now. And now what are they doing? What's their occupation in eternity? Because that's the picture here. 
While they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of your fears have come true. What we will spend eternity doing is worshiping God forever. And you say, that sounds boring. Right? Let's be straight about it. Right? It sounds boring. But. Oh, gosh, there's a but. But. Have any, you ever received a gift from somebody when you didn't get a gift in return for them? Like around Christmas time, you're thinking, who do I need to get gifts for this year? And, and somebody you know, comes up to you and they give you a gift, and they're like, hey, you know, I just, Merry Christmas, I, I love you, I'm glad we're friends. And you get that gift, and you're not feeling any gratitude. What you're feeling is terror that, oh, no, I didn't get this person a gift. So how do you respond? You know how you respond, right? You say, yeah, your gift's coming from Amazon. It's not here yet. I think there was a shipping delay. I know it'll be here soon, right? Because we can't be in debt to each other this way. If I get a gift from you, I have to give you a gift in return. Let me ask you something. Are you feeling a lot of gratitude in that moment? Because gift-giving creates debts instead of gratitude, that's why we get so stressed out around Christmas time, right? I gotta find a good gift for everybody because it's a responsibility. There's no love left in Christmas. There's only the pressure of giving the good gift. But have you ever received a gift from maybe somebody who's very close to you? Someone you have this relationship of, of mutual trust with. Uh, let me put it to you this way. Uh, Joshua Kerr and I, he's uh, an associate pastor at First Press in Visalia. We had the privilege of ordaining him here to that ministry. And we're getting together once a week to read our Greek Bibles together because we learned how to do that a long time ago and we're forgetting how to do that and we don't want to forget because we paid a lot of money for it and we worked really hard on it. And so we get together and we do this. And we have lunch. And so what happens every time we get together to have lunch? I got this one. No, 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 no. No, I've got this one. Wait, who paid for this last time? It happens every Friday with the guys from here who, who go to lunch up there. You know, some, whoever gets to the register first gives over his card, and everyone else says, oh, it was my turn to pay. The first guy says, no, it was my turn to pay. And then we all grumpily like thank each other. Well, thank you. you know, I guess this is good. Because when our experience of gratitude, gratitude is tempered by a perceived debt, it is not a joy. It is not a joy. And that's kind of how we feel about God right now. Right? Yeah, Jesus, he died for me to save me from my sins, and I really wish he didn't have to do that because I feel bad. I feel bad about that. Jesus, I feel really bad you had to die for me. You know, I wish I could have just been a little bit better. I wish I could have taken care of that. And so the idea of worship becomes a responsibility. right? Uh, I guess I got to worship God. I guess I have to be grateful to God. One of my favorite books is uh, Gaudy Night by Dorothy Sayers. And it concludes a, a series of books, The Lord Peter Whimsey Mysteries, written back in like the 20s in England. They're great books. And in, in Gaudy Night, uh, Harriet Vane is not, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey is the main character, the detective. And Harriet Vane is someone that Lord Peter saved by being a detective, right? She was in the dock. She was sentenced to death for killing somebody, and Peter finds out that she really didn't do it. And Peter, by the way, falls in love with her and says, I, I want to marry you. When all this is over, let's get married. And so all of it's over, and she gets out of jail, and do you think they get married? No, because this is a realistic book, and what does Harriet Vane feel toward Lord Peter? 
You saved my life, and now I'm obligated toward you. And I find no joy in relationship or friendship with you because of that obligation. There's a moment in Gaudy Night where Lord Peter buys something for Harriet. And he says, that deserves to be put in a glass case. And Harriet responds, why? And Peter says, it's the only thing you've ever let me give you. And Harriet says, accept my life. Accept my life. Accept my life. And Peter says a word I'm not allowed to say in church. And he stared out angrily over the windshield of his car. It must have been a pretty bitter gift if you can't let either of us forget it. And I think we have some of this in our relationship with God, don't we? Accept my life. Accept my life. Accept my life. But later in the book, Peter has changed as well. And where he was trying to hold on to Harriet and not let her go, now he lets her risk her life as they try and solve a mystery together. And Peter says, I did, I managed finally to let you go and do this. And Harriet responds, Peter, I did manage to appreciate that. Mayn't I be grateful for it? What does Peter think? Of course not, because your gratitude stinks and it hurts. So Peter says, I don't want gratitude. And Harriet responds, but won't you take it now that I want to give it to you? Harriet is a wonderfully written character. And at the end, of course, she and Peter finally work out their differences. Only a few pages later in the book, as a matter of fact. And they get married and they live happily ever after, more or less. Now think on your own of what a strange thing gratitude is. Sometimes an unwelcome visitor, sometimes an obligation to someone you don't like or don't respect or just don't want to be indebted to. But on the other hand, gratitude is sometimes a life-changing feeling and experience that brings joy and seals a relationship forever. I think that's what we see in that last scene, Peter saying, I don't want gratitude. She says, I'm not giving it to you because I owe it to you, but because I finally want to. You ever felt that sort of gratitude towards somebody? There was no sense of obligation. It was just a pure thank you. And when you have that sort of gratitude, it's something you keep repeating back over and over again to that person. I'm so grateful for when you did this. Thank you so much. I just, I think so much of you because of it. I love you. See, gratitude turns into love at the end of the day. And the saints in heaven here in in chapter 7, which is you and I, we are the ones sealed. We are the ones who are living under the four horsemen. We are the ones who we can't escape all of the physical danger and yet our spiritual future. 
our eternal future is guaranteed. And one day when we stand in God's presence, it won't be any longer, God, I'm so sorry how badly I messed this up that, that Jesus had to die for me. But instead it'll be, I can't believe you died for me. You are incredible. You are amazing. You see what they're saying here? Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's not because it's out of obligation. It's because they finally come to understand fully who God is and what he's done. They've stepped outside of the world where the four horsemen run back and forth, damaging and contaminating everything in their path. And instead they see there is an entirely new sort of world. It doesn't play by the same rules. And it's because we belong to a God who doesn't play by the same rules. To a God who doesn't hold things over our head forever and ever. To a God who will give to, to the repentant and to the people who want the gift of his salvation. All of the gifts of his salvation. They will no longer hunger or thirst. The sun won't beat down on them. He will be our shepherd and God will wipe away every tear. You notice how it doesn't say there will be no more sad things. I don't know if there will be or not. Uh, that's not the point. It doesn't say there will be no more sad things. It says he will wipe away every tear. What's it, what's it like when someone comes up to you and does that for you? Who washes away your sadness? That's, that's love. That's relationship. He wants to be that involved in our lives. See, we need to pause as we're making our way through Revelation and we're seeing that evil will really be judged. To remember that the judge is just and he is fair and he longs to save and he protects his people even when it feels like the world is falling apart around them and he uses the broken things in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ for our good and for our neighbor's. And just as surely, maybe even more surely, don't call me surely, right? But maybe even more surely than any of the rest of this stuff, than, than the judgment that's coming, God has marked us as his own. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence. We didn't get to the seventh seal. That's worth getting to. We'll have to wait. But as we respond to God's word this morning, as we think on eternity, we think on a good future, and it looks a little strange. It doesn't, it, well, it looks like relationship. Maybe a relationship we're not entirely sure that we know or we want at the moment. I want to do two things. One is we're going to sing the love of God here in just a moment as an illustration and as praise. But the second thing is maybe here this morning you're recognizing that's not the relationship I have with God. It's a relationship of obligation. I give so he gives back or he gives so I have to give back. And there is no way to God except except by taking the first step. There's no argument I can give you or anyone else that is a magic bullet that will convince you 
doesn't mean there aren't good reasons. There are. That's part of why I'm a Christian. But maybe you need to take that step this morning. And if you do, you know, we're just, just going to pause in prayer. And I, I'm not even, even going to give you words for the prayer. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute. All you have to do is just say, God, I want to turn around right now. And I want to know you, not just as someone who judges, not just as someone who is, is sovereign over this world or king of this world, but I want to know you as the one who wipes away my tears. And would you show me how to do that? If you will honor that 